Joe presents TKO together with 32 Red. Hello and welcome to TKO on Joe together with 32 Red, round number 40. I can't believe we're here. And it is the final round of season one. Carl is in Las Vegas now prepping for his next fight on November 30th. If you're watching, good luck, mate. We're all behind you. But today is all about taking a trip down memory lane, looking at some of the best bits from the first season of TKO. We're going to be picking out some of our favourite highlights for you and you can relive them with us. First up, episode two, we headed to meet the legendary Chris Eubank Sr. It was as eccentric as you can imagine. And here he is talking about what his son needs, he believes, to become a legitimate world champion. It's a very, uh, it's a very peculiar phenomena. He has all the tools and all the drive. The spiritual aspect, you know, I always talk about Sunday school. Sunday school teaches you that there is something bigger than you. I don't know what it is, but there's something bigger than you and you have to be respectful of it. And it's that that some people don't have. I went to Sunday school every week, by the way. Every week. Mom made me go. So those prerequisites and those principles of which is taught chivalry, kindness, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Respect your parents. Respect your teachers. Respect the law, punctuality, discipline, consideration, manners, manners, being gentle. These are the prerequisites to being a champion. This behavior will make you champion in your vocation. How do I know? I did it. Yeah, it was interesting and surreal, that one, as you can probably imagine. I don't think we'd had it any other way. Um, though I do think Carl was wondering whether all of the interviews would be like that. Thankfully, some of them have been a little bit more laid back. And that takes us to episode 14 earlier on this year. We caught up with legendary cutsman Kerry Kays. What a great guy he is. And he explains to us in this next clip why some fighters are more susceptible to cuts than others. The worst cut I had was I fell down the storage wand. <laughs> <laughs> completely, completely blitzed, and uh, I have a pretty bad one here. But <laughs> in, in boxing, I've had a few. Kerry, you busy, mate? I've just I've had a fall. Yeah. Bring the swabs. But, I, I used to have to follow John Murray out. John, I, used out with, I used to go out with John Murray on a Friday night. Just walking that's around the swabs. That's when I learnt courts. But I, I've been, I've been lucky enough in fights that I've I haven't had. I've had a few little nicks, but nothing. Nothing major, but it's it's annoying. What's and, the, what's and you the feel like you're a bit. Like? It's like, you can't really describe it. It's just like you've been cut. You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know what the feeling's you like. You mark up more than get cut. Yeah, I, I have yeah, a big, yeah, you, you know, lumps and bumps yeah, there's everywhere. More, there's more control in keeping the bumps down. Yeah, because like Ricky Hatton had a very like angular face, and yeah. I feel like had sort of thin skin on like his cheekbones, well, very well, high cheekbones. Well, also here, like Yui Fiore, you you if you're will always get cut. Yeah, because he's got very high bones here. You yeah. know what I mean? And weirdly, we've we've had uh, Boatsian uh, on the show. He's got like very flat features, and he doesn't. He's never cut at all mm. in his career. And I kind of look at him and I think, I don't think you're gonna. Mm, yeah. I don't think he'll get cut. Some fighters will, will easily get cut. Yeah, interesting. Ricky Hatton, um, I don't know if people know this. 
Uh, halfway through Ricky's career, he had to have plastic surgery. And what happened was he was getting cut every fight like that. It was nothing and he was getting cut. So they went to see a plastic surgeon, they opened him up, and they found inside the cut was Vaseline that had crystallised. So the doctor at some venue, probably in Ricky's early days, four, six-round fights, had not cleaned out the Vaseline. He just <sighs> stitched him up. The Vaseline had crystallised, so he almost had glass behind his skin. Well, later on in that same episode, we discussed the importance of the trust between the fighter and those in their corner. His last fight, I heard the most perfect statement from the corner, Jamie Moore, to him. And I, and I, th- I thought it summed it up perfect in trust. Jamie said to him, I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't done. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't say much after the Macklin fight. <laughs> Flipping it. More crap. But you know what I, mean? I thought, how was he Macklin's corner, you know, against Jamie? We. Of course, yeah. yeah. What Madness, fight. isn't it? What a fight. No, but I was in Macklin's corner against Jamie. Yeah, yeah. And Jamie's one of my best mates. Yeah, crazy. Mad, isn't it? And now they, and they work together after that, <laughs> but, of course, uh, as well. Yeah, but I thought that, that statement, I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't done. And I thought, what a, what a superb that. I said, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> one of my personal highlights this year was getting Mike Costello in. Mike, if you don't know, is BBC boxing commentator on the radio. And as a kid, I used to listen to him on the radio. So having worked in the industry for a few years, become friends with Mike, it's just been an absolute privilege to pick his brains now and again. And we had him in the studio to talk through his experience of boxing. Here's the story about when he first met the legendary Steve Bunce. It goes back to when we were kids boxing on the, the South London circuit. Um, and frankly, we were both failures. And that, that kind of informs what we do. You know, we, we worship people like Carl. And I, mean, I can say this happily in his company in, in a way that I'm not sure everybody else or, or many others in the media could because we were failures down at our you know, grassroots club level. When they walk to the ring, you know, when he's four and five steps away from our commentary position, I, I get this, this feeling in the pit of my stomach because I'm, I'm like this Walter Mitty character. I wish I was doing what he was doing, but I wasn't good enough. I wasn't brave enough. So that's where I go back to with Steve. And, and then we, we, if you like, we, we kind of rediscovered each other through the media, through boxing. He started out um, as, a, if you like, a, a down-the-table uh, reporter with the Daily Telegraph and I started with the BBC World Service um, and, and in those early days we, we had no idea that we'd one day be going to to Las Vegas or you know outdoors at the Titanic at Belfast and, and all those major major nights mad nights nights that we dreamt of being part of as as kids and um, you know, we just gradually, gradually worked our way up. I, I didn't know you came... I knew Bunce boxed before. I didn't know you boxed yourself as a kid. And maybe that's, like... That's probably where the passion comes from. Like, when yeah. you, you can hear it in your voice when, when, when you're listening to the radio commentary. There's definitely passion there. And it's probably mm-hmm. because you know the game. Not know it as a spectator, but you've done it. What I always say, Carl, is, I, you know, I, I do have an insight because of what I did, but everything I did was over three rounds. Mm. What I can't get my head around is, is what you do when it gets to eight, nine and ten. You know, when, you know, I've heard Ricky Hatton and many others say that at that point, however much you trust your trainer, whether it's Jamie or whoever, it ultimately comes down to you. And I, I, that's where I, I haven't got a window into, that 8, 9, 10, and when you've really got to drag it up from somewhere. You know, in, in a sense, as an amateur, you can always see the finish line. It's only ever nine minutes mm. away. Mm. It's, it's very different. And, and I remember um, 
many people laughed and dismissed and dissed the fight between Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor, but there was a fascinating comment from McGregor at the end of the fight. And he said he sat down on his stool after the fifth round. This was, was at the press conference. He's drinking whiskey, but he still had enough time to, to get serious. And, and he said, I sat down at the end of the fifth round, and he said, Jesus Christ, there's still seven rounds to go. He and, and, and that, so he was he was paying a massive compliment to all of these people mm. without really mm. understanding what he was saying at the time, you know, and that the, the length of those fights and the grueling nature of those fights and where where these people are prepared to go, you know, is is what makes it so absolutely fascinating for me, both, you know, before and leading up to the fights, after the fights, but mostly on, on the night of the fight. You know, there is no moment. There is no place like ringside anywhere in sport i've been lucky enough to cover a lot of sports i cover track and field athletics which means i'm front and center for the olympics the number one sport in the olympics athletics but apart from super saturday at london 2012 there's nothing that can match a, a big fight night and and as far as we're apart here chris this is well you know this is how far we are mm. away from yeah. the ring there have been times when i've had blood on my notes that's that's how close we get to to the very best of elite sport to another one of my favourite memories and Darren Barker, the former IBF world middleweight champion, joined me for two episodes. Such was the popular demand and such is the depth of his story. Now, Darren and I have become great friends over the last year. We worked together on the match and build-up shows. We've just commentated today on Inoue uh, and Donaire and it was an absolute privilege. Now, Darren has had, as a lot of you know, a difficult journey. He lost his brother Gary uh, when he was just 19 years of age and Darren very nearly walked away from the sport but he stuck at it and he got his ultimate world championship moment against Daniel Gill in Atlantic City. 2013, he became middleweight champion of the world. Here's a story of the difficult saga he went through and how the memory of his brother Gary inspired him to the heights of boxing. I knew if I didn't win this fight, I never would have fought again. Ever, ever would have got in the ring again. So this was everything. I had to win this fight and I had to make the adjustment. And um, thankfully I did. It, it didn't look pretty, but it made for a great fight. It's a really good fight. Yeah, you know, I mean, it made he, for a good fight. He worked with you, but you were like possessed that night. And yeah. You fought a little differently to, to what you have done in the past, but there was a lot of trading and... It was it was nip and tuck, but you always felt like you had the edge. Yeah. And then middle of the fight, I mean, it's it's still to this day one of the best body shots I've seen. Yeah. And I've watched a lot of boxing. Just you know, tell me about it. Yeah, it was a peach of a body shot. Everything was going to plan. I was winning the fight. Not much in the rounds, but I felt I was winning it and got caught with a peach of a body shot. Uh, my whole life flashed in front of me. <laughs> you know, crazy. I've got my brother there, get up, and visions of my daughter saying, you know, you know, you've got to provide for her, you've got to win this fight. And it was just a crazy You hear moment. the crowd as well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, like, it's just a lot of muffled noise, but it's loud. It's, you know, I can hear his crowd, uh, his team screaming and shouting and celebrating. Mad, like nine and a half seconds seemed like nine and a half weeks. It was mad, nine and a half years. Just so much happened in that moment. And again, what got you up? We're going to say my brother. I'm going to say, I'm going to say the final piece in our jigsaw puzzle. You know, the final piece, winning that world title for us, for him. And I got up, and I was in, I was in agony, mate. I was in agony, and. Uh, somehow managed to pull myself together and um, 
because he came straight at you as well. Yeah. Because like, he weren't sure. He hadn't seen that shot land. So I can tell he wasn't sure. But as the seconds went on on the count, he knew. And I'm kicking my feet. Yeah, I was winded. Yeah. He's in base banging trouble here. Um, and he'd come out and he'd fire. And I was that close to getting stopped. And I fired back at the end of that sixth round. And there's a shift in power because he's so close to beating me. And I'm so close to getting beat where it's almost like, I'm still here, mate. Well, if you're running, that's all yeah. you've got. Is that all you've got? Because mm. I'll tell you now, if it's the other way around, you wouldn't still be here. And um, credit to to, that, to Daniel Gill, he stayed in there and he and he you know he he mixed fire with fire, and it was it was epic. And I go back as a kid, and I when I used to play out winning world titles, like I think I said in part one, did, yeah. that was my, that was my. That's how I wanted to win a world title. I wanted to, I wanted I wanted it to be in a fight that people would talk about forever. And I, though it wasn't the greatest fight in the world, it was a very good fight and a fight that I still get tweets and messages daily from people saying, "What a fight! One of my greatest away uh, boxing moments. Why? That's why I got into boxing." And I cannot believe it, mate. I can't believe it. But yeah, the final bell goes. Uh, I'm celebrating. I think I've won, but I knew it was close. I was the away fighter. It was Daniel Gill's American debut. 10-8 for the 10-8 for the round. Yeah. Not much in it, but Sky Sports had given me the fight. Well, of course. Uh, HBO had given me the fight. And I was just telling you back there that when Buffer is stood with his the card there, about to read it out, my brother's behind him. Mm. He was in the corner. So he's on the outside of the apron. And he's seen the scorecard. So he goes uh, 114-113. To Gil. Or was it 115, whatever, to Gil. Then 116, 111 yeah. to me. Yeah. So he knows I've, I've got it right. That's it. But he's told my family at the front, Darren's won this. But then it, it horror hits him and he's thinking, oh, I've got this wrong. Yeah. How bad yeah, is that yeah, going to yeah. be? But then, yeah, 114. And when they said 114, I thought, well, this is going to be a draw then because mm. it usually is. And 114, 113, there's a winner. And, uh, and the new. You know. Like, what can I say? You know, it's just crazy. Like, my... It had come true. It had come... My wildest dream had come true. The, the My scenario of how I wanted to win the World Cup had come true. Everything had just... My life was fulfill, fulfilled. Everything... I'd, I'd done it. And then there's a moment where I jump, I'm celebrating, and I crash the floor, and I'm I'm very upset. You know, and there's sad tears, because uh, I'd let... I achieved what I'd set out to do and it was almost like letting go of my brother mm. like we've done it now mate yeah. you know you can sort of you can you, go you can go now and uh, honestly you can see my hair mate you're like, telling me he's doing me it, like me. honestly it, like yeah it it does me now thinking mm. about it oh, because yeah, it was yeah. a moment that I kind of let go of my brother in the sense that we've done it we've done it you know and it was crazy. You know, I had one hell of a hangover after. <laughs> <laughs> now, a woman I had the absolute privilege to meet, somebody I admire hugely, is Christina Poncha. We went over to the United States, uh, to Philadelphia for a fight night, and Christina very kindly sat down with us for 40 minutes to talk about her career. Now, Christina, as many of you will know, is the first ever female lead commentator on United States Boxing TV. An incredible achievement. She's breaking down barriers, and she had some scarily prophetic words about Tyson Fury and Otto Vorlin. Have a listen to this. Obviously, the, the franchise champion thing that's just been brought in and kind of bestowed upon Canelo is essentially a way of, of the WBC saying, you no longer have your mandatory commitments as a, as a champion. Great for Canelo, because he can pick the big money fights, but for the fighters that 
are kind of working their way up the rankings, forming good relationships with the WBC to get in that position where they are mandatory. That title of mandatory challenger, if you've gone the WBC route, is essentially now obsolete if you want to face Canelo Alvarez. It changes the rules, basically. Yeah. That's what you're doing. And that's what people, that's why they fight and they take these tough tasks to move up to rankings and get those opportunities to where they either, you know, get are guaranteed the fight or they get a nice little chunk of money to do a quote-unquote step aside mm. if there's another bigger fight to be made, but then you automatically become next. You know, that that's the whole point of, of, of working your way up the rankings to get this opportunity. And I understand, you know, at, at this point... Um, you know, something freak could happen and a guy could get hurt in one of these mandatory fights and it would cost him for the next. Look, we're dealing with that with Tyson Fury right now. He's going to fight a guy and, and Otto Whalen. It's like, well, we know the Wilder fight is on the horizon. Mm. But he, he's he's the kind of guy where he needs to stay active and stay fighting for his mental and physical, all that. Mm -hmm. um, but And not that that's a mandatory type situation, but I'm just saying it's one of those things where it's like you, you don't want to get hurt or have something happen and ruin that Omega fight. And I think that's what maybe the thinking is with Canelo. You mm. know, I, if we're going to get this Triple G fight or whatever the case is going to be, is it going to be Kovalev or whatever? Like, you want to minimize your risk yeah, on the way to it. that fight. This whole process has made me realize how lucky we've been to secure some of the guests we've had in the first 40 shows. One of them that was on our hit list and we got right at the end of season one was Kala Sauler. Now, he's a cult figure on social media. He came up with the idea for the World Boxing Super Series. We talked all about that, his early days as a football agent. But nothing riled him up and gave us some vintage Kala Sauler as much as his thoughts on social media. Before we finish, we've got this section of our show called the 32 Second Challenge. So oh, literally God. in 32 seconds. I did one yesterday. See, I'm, you know, people, you know, see, we're talking about the, 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 the following and things like that. And the on, on the, you know, obviously the Twitters and the, the I'm so behind on this social oh, yeah. media. Like, I'm terrible at it. And someone came up to me yesterday and said, right, you've got 15 seconds. I said, well, why have you got fucking 15 seconds? What are you giving me 15 seconds for, mate? I'll fucking tell you how fucking long I'll tell you how to fucking sell this. No, you've got to do 15 seconds. I said, what's the 15 seconds? Well, that's the story. I said, what the fuck is a story? Oh, it is, yeah. So I think I'm honest. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Why 15? Why, who fucking came up with the idea it's 15 fucking <laughs> seconds? Why can't my story be two minutes, right? So Instagram, wherever you are, <laughs> fucking listen to me. Back in August, one of the modern greats of boxing was over as part of the commentary team for Lomachenko versus Luke Campbell. Andre Ward, a two-weight world champion, personally one of my favourite fighters, came and sat with Carl and I to talk a little bit about his career. It was fascinating stuff. I'm so pleased we got to meet him. He also had some words to say about one Mr. Carl Froch. So I loved, I loved the tournament. It, it made me who I was. It hardened me. It... it uh it confirmed to the world, but then also to me and my team that, that everything we believe was true and that I belong. So I loved it just the way that it was. And um, obviously it was a lot of, you know, inner workings and, you know, delays and stuff like that. But we got it done in two years and I was the last man standing. Yeah. Okay. And, I, and I made a friend for life. Carl Frotch. <laughs> so, uh, have you, that's a bonus too. Have you seen him this week? He's not been around, has he? He said he went on holiday. He's uh, hiding, he's that's hiding. convenient, very yeah, conveniently yeah. timed. Maybe next time. Yeah. What, what would you say to him if you saw him? I honestly don't have, I don't have any bad blood with him. I'm firm with Carl Frotch, but I, I don't have no bad blood. Like, I think it's a part of him that, that respects me and that, that in some cases likes me too, but he's just bitter. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask a question. Do you think he's just a bit bitter? He's just bitter. He, he's bitter. And, he, and that, that's the only, like, real knock that I have on him is he, he, he's never been able to stand up and be a man and, and say, look, man, you beat me. 
Like he's made excuses that don't even make sense. Mm. And if it's not this, it's that. And it's just hard to respect that. But I, but I love just getting a rile out of him like every so often. I'll just say one thing. He'll take the bait every time. And, and the fans are just like UK fans, not, not American fans. Mm-hmm. English fans will get on him and say, man, you're crazy. Shut up, Carl. And that's just Carl Fry. So I have a good time with it. A lot of it is tongue in cheek. I'm not, I'm not, it may seem serious, but it's not. Mm. Um, but I certainly would have liked to see him, man, and, and just, just see his reaction. Because mm. in the past, even, you know, as we were building up to fight, maybe a fight or two away from seeing who was going to be in the finals, he would say all these reckless things online. And then as soon as I see him in the hallway in Las Vegas, he's the first one to reach his hand yeah. And it's it's funny because where I come from, like, when you say things like that, like, we believe you. That's real to you. Yeah. yeah like, like I'm not saying we're going to fight when we see each other, but, like, I expect you to, to maybe not be so friendly, but he would do the opposite of what he said. He's always been that kind of guy, so I don't know. But, I, I yeah, I kind of miss the guy. I haven't seen him in a while. Recently, I went up to Manchester to catch up with Carl in camp and big Stephen Ward, who's getting ready for the MTK Golden contract. He's currently the WBO European light heavyweight champion. The two of them live together when they're training in Manchester, and they're a right pair. We got stuck into all things boxing, and then there was an interesting revelation about Carl's ability to have a little sing-song. Led to something quite remarkable, which, if you haven't seen it, you need to. I was... Asked to go on. Were you? The Celebrity X Factor. That's bizarre. And I put uh, my audition in, which. Have you got it? Yeah. I, it was a long time ago. Let me see if I have it. Sam and Kyle personally wanted me on. Shut up. So I had to go to LA and do a. Hang uh, on, are you making this up? I swear to God. So I had to go, I had to, go to LA and do like a private or like a fake audition as if I was auditioning for the show, but they wanted me on. But now today, when this is finished, Hold I'm going to have to listen to this all day now. So, it's starting next week. They asked me to go on it. And I just, I'm a, I'm, I'm a boxer. You know what I mean? I'm still a boxer. I can't be on the singing competition with Ricky Lake. Yeah, she, she is on it. Yeah, it's going to take me a while yeah. to find this. Ricky Lake, Tom Evans, uh, I forget who else, but yeah. Well, okay, but, listen, you, you scroll through that. I'm going to scroll through. Because, you because, because he knows he's a good singer. If I'm in the apartment and I start singing, no, I'll get about five words in and he'll start singing but he does this thing and he knows he does it so he'll sing but then all of a sudden he, when he finishes he'll uh, look over at you and just say oh I'm better than you you know it's singing it gets quite frustrating fan clip I found it yeah okay so I was driving when I done it and I sent it to a member of my management team right hold, hold this up to your mic so we can get uh, we can get the sound let's have a listen it's so proud of him. It's, it's good. All right, well, we'll, we'll be the judge of that. Okay. Ah, uh, I'm really nervous. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know where to look. Bet you're wondering how I knew About your plans to like make it? me blue With some other guy you knew before Between the two of us guys You know I loved you more you took me by surprise, I must say. <laughs> when I found out yesterday, don't you know I heard it through the grapevine? What are you saying? And how much longer would you two be mine? Again. Oh, I heard it through the grapevine. And I'm just about to lose my mind. You've charmed me. Our? Excellent. I'm sweating here. Imagine <laughs> me on the show. Do, do you know what? That was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Oh. 
Uh, yeah, all right. Why is it won't stop? Um, <laughs> do you know what? Like, I sent it in, and then I was like, ah, oh, this is going to be great. And then Christine, I thought I told you this. No. So Christine really criticized my singing. Christine can sing. She's a good singer. Um, and she thinks that I'm not very good. She likes to just say that. She yeah, has to yeah, put yeah. me down. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've never heard Christine sing. She's a good singer. Do a little duet, maybe. Yeah. But yeah. Um, she said, please don't go on it, because you're going to be the Wagner of the show. She thought they were going to just embarrass me and make a fool of me. But they wanted me back on when I turned out, when I turned it down, and obviously I'm a boxer, they want to continue boxing. You know, they were saying this may be the last ever one. We would like you on. Please rethink. I'd love you to do it after you retire. Well, we'll We'll see. see. What I'm I'm worried about is sometimes when I'm singing, I I start in the wrong key. You, you were, I would say you were ever so slightly out at the beginning and then you got back on track. Uh. <laughs> you were on the hard shoulder and then you drifted into lane so? two, yeah. Well, when you start in the wrong key, it's normally hard for me to get back. Oh, you, I, th- I thought you pulled it back in, yeah. Thanks. I don't want to say, I'm not, I'm not listening to. <laughs> I thought I told you this. No, you didn't tell me. No, I heard it through the grapevine. Um. <laughs> <laughs> now, as most of you will know, yesterday was the 10-year anniversary of David Hay dethroning the beast from the East, Nikolai Valuev, to secure the WBA Heavyweight Championship of the World. A memorable moment for David. He's gone on to great things since then, and it was a pleasure to sit down with us and listen to his story about when he very first saw the seven foot two beast from the east. There must have been a point because he's such a striking guy to look at. There must have been a point where you first heard of him, first saw him. Yeah, I, went, I went to see him fight in um, in East London. He was actually um, uh, managed by Frank Maloney many, many moons ago. And I was still an amateur. I was probably 15 years old at the time. And I heard about this giant. He wasn't world champion and he was only just coming through. I heard about this big freak show heavyweight who's seven foot something and he's fighting East London. So I remember I went down there with my boxing boxing team at Fitzroy Lodge and I saw the size of this guy. He was only fighting the pudding. He knocked someone out. But I remember going up next to him thinking, oh, I'm thinking <laughs> what the hell? Yeah. And then fast forward 15 years or what it was and then I'm... I'm I'm getting in the ring with him. Oh, was that was that long ago? Yeah, it was a, it was a real, real long time ago. Wow. You, you like how does Frank Maloney end up managing Nikolai Valuev? How does that even come about? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no good, good question. But, no good. Like you, you look you look at him and he's like, he's you think just because of the size of him and the way he looks that he's got to be a big thunderhead. Yeah, but he's actually pretty clever. Isn't yeah, he? He, yeah, he was a lot. He was a lot faster than I hoped he'd be. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was hoping he'd be way slower than he was because because he doesn't put too much weight into his shots. He's able to just kind of flick his arm he's out. Knee, but his, but his arm's so heavy that's like a regular shot yeah. for uh, wow. someone putting some meat into it. So uh, it was really funny because when I was a little kid, I used to watch uh, Rocky Four as my favorite mo- favorite movie when Rocky went to Russia to fight Ivan Drago, and for some reason, I've always thought. I'm going to be. I'm going to fight this big Russian for the heavyweight title. I said I was going to be heavyweight champ since I was a, even younger than mm. that. And over the years, I, whenever I visualise being heavyweight champion, it's always against a, some giant Russian guy. And then randomly, here I am. I've got, I had that opportunity, you know, to have the WBA title. You know, so it was a, it was a, it was an amazing, it was an amazing experience because I kind of knew walking into it. I thought this is it. This is what my whole life's been set for because I've said it to so many people growing up down to be heavyweight champion of the world mm. you know, and uh, I've got my own version of Ivan Drago and Nikolai Value I remember I watching the food and so I was actually I in was primary pa- school no, I, was, I, was with, uh, <laughs> I was with Paddy Barnes and we watched it in Paddy Barnes's flat he had at the time 
and there was a squad of us over watching it. And watching the fight, I just remember the last round we all fucking erupted <laughs> like, holy shit, these, the big man's the going big here. Right hand. And you were champion that to use for most of that fight. Either, yeah, yeah. No, I hit him with the, the one that hurt him was the big left hook. Yeah, you know, I, I, I hurt my right hand earlier on in the fight. But I was just, I had to be really, uh, I had to try to change my style quite a bit to sort of influence the judges and the fact that having a, a regular boxing match with him, he's just too big. And yeah. I got, I, so I had to hit him with hard shots and then step away and yeah. stay calm and walk around him like I'm the sort of bull. Uh, sorry, like he's the bull, I'm the matador. Just mm. kind of just making him He's in the sense of just doing circles, exactly, basically. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it, it, worked, it worked the treat and uh, it was it was a... It was, an awkward, it was an awkward fight. It wasn't a tough fight. It was just a, it was a, a physically um, demanding fight. Cause I had to move more. And every and so I couldn't just throw a jab like that. I had to come in. I had to faint, faint, mm. then come in, with it, give my shots, and then get out That's and roll. Right. So I had to do that continuously without getting hit at all. Because, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm effectively a cruiser. I was only 15 stone seven, I think, for that fight. It was 23-something stone. So we had a bit of a, a weight advantage. So I couldn't, af- I couldn't, I couldn't afford to kind of get do my work and step out as he throws a big hook get caught at the end of it. Yeah. It's just too heavy and it would just dumb me. And you did a lot of work to the body because I guess you're, yeah. you're not... I mean, his head's a massive target, mm. but also it's, I had it's to keep, miles I had above. to keep hitting him in his solar plexus, but it just felt really solid. I've never hit anybody. Do you think you hurt him to the body at all? Nah, nah. I, I remember digging him really and it just... So he just, sick. Yeah, he <laughs> just did nothing. We kind of bounced. I was like hitting a heavy bag. It was a really strange <laughs> sensation. Yeah, to um, feel like you can't move somebody at, at all. No, and you were a puncher whenever, whenever well. I got, whenever I got, I think I got into like, like two or three clinches, and I just, I was like, I don't bother. This <laughs> just, I had all this hairy hair in my face. I'm like, <laughs> but thankfully, the referee um, broke it, broke it, and I was able to move around, wow. carry on with my uh, matador move. But yeah, it's good, good, uh, good memory. It's a long yeah, two thousand. Eight, uh, 10 years ago. 2009. No, sorry, t- yeah, yeah. 2009, yeah, ago, nearly yeah. 10 years. In the summer, I popped up to see Carl as he made his final preparations for that fight in Philadelphia that never happened. We were in the gym with Jamie Moore, Nigel Travis, Martin Murray and all the boys. Now, Tommy Coyle was there. He'd just come off the back of that defeat to Chris Algieri in New York. Very, very difficult times. A number of people were calling for him to retire. And I sat down just to catch up with him, not really expecting to have the interview that we had together. It was so powerful, so emotional, that we actually clipped it up as a separate episode of TKO, and I think it deserved that. What came from that conversation mid-dialogue was Tommy's realisation that perhaps his career was over. It's one of the most difficult interviews I've ever done possibly the most important and I just want to say Tommy thank you for opening up to me and for sharing it with everybody whatever you do decide to do we're all behind you mate I love fighting I've, 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 I don't just say this for sound bites by the way I don't just say it because it sounds good in interviews I genuinely fucking love fighting mm. um, and yeah to think that I might, might not be able to do it anymore it's quite sad really yeah, it must be difficult, as you say, knowing the end is near. Do, do you feel, because I know you were tweeting about, you know, saying, well, maybe one last fight against Ryan Garcia if it was in um, oh. Vegas or something like that. <laughs> Jay, Jamie, by the way, has just shouted no. There were a few people tweeting saying, listen, you're a hero in, in your home city. You've done so much for the sport. You've had an amazing career. But, you know, a lot of people kind of seem to say, you know, think about your health and your family and, and the future. Um, what do you feel like when you read those kind of comments? Because people are so in support of you, but they're also looking out for your health as a Jamie and, and everyone else in the gym. Yeah, it's nice. It's, it is nice to to have so many, you know, care about you, um, say nice things. But I guess you're the last to admit it, aren't you? Um, I just I feel like 
on the back of that performance um, and how I feel as a person, I still feel like I've got something to offer. But you know, I've asked, I've, I've had a few different meetings with a few different people that I know care about me and are smart and are looking from the outside. And it's he's, he's made me, it's made me consider. It. I think first and foremost, I need to get the information. I need to find out if my eyes are okay. I need to find out if I'm healthy. And then there's the time in this, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be... Time waits for nobody. You're just going to mm. keep getting older. And I need to work out if I've got the ability. Um, I, I read something earlier and it said, if you fail 10 times and you quit, then you're a quitter. But if you fail 50 times and you don't quit, then you're daft. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to be daft, but I don't want to be a quitter as well. So I'm just trying to work out whether I'd be a quitter or I'd be daft. I guess that's when you rely on good people around you yeah. that have your best interests at heart, isn't it? Yeah, of course. And, you know, everybody is advising me not to. And it's hard for me to do this interview because, genuinely, I don't know what I'm going to do. Mm. Um, and it's quite upsetting, really. Honestly, it's hard... Because I do want to carry on fighting. But I want to be around for the next 50 years as well, you know what I mean? Mm. Hearing all this and hearing what you've said, I think I know what your answer <laughs> to this is going to be. I'm staring him out. Is there any circumstance under which you would let him fight again? Listen, it's not about me letting him fight. I have to voice my opinion. And it's only because I care about him so much. And I understand the dangers. I've been through this myself, don't forget. Yep. I know how difficult it is. And I understand him having these aspirations. But where do you stop? Mm. Where do you stop? You know, you, you could box in Vegas next time. And then... And then a whole homecoming. A, and... a show comes up in Dubai. <laughs> and then what, you know... It's just... There the really is no end. Then it's like, yeah, exactly, a homecoming in Hull. Um, you won't ever... I, my advice is to him. I understand that he wants to fight. I, I went through it for many years myself. You never get rid of that urge to fight. You learn to deal with it. So I said to him, just don't think that if you have one more fight, you'll get rid of that urge. You won't. It's, it's, you'll, it'll stay with you. It'll take you at least two years to learn to live with it. But at some point, everyone's got to come to terms with it. You need to find something else. It's not going to... Not getting smashed in your face, but it's going to give you that I definitely thrill. need to find something else, 100%. Mate, maybe it's all sliding. Maybe it is. Do you know what I mean? You've got, to, you've got to find that next stage of your life. Because you remember, you know, if you're 50 years left on this planet and you, you're not, you, know, you know you're not going to be able to fight in your 80, 70, 60, 50. It has to come a point when you stop. So for mm. those last 30 years, you have to find something. Do you know anyway. what I think today I've realised as well coming here, speaking, hearing like, Jeremy say that, I think I've realised it's over. Yeah. So I think that's done me in that a bit today. You right? Yeah. It's like, I think it's, it's done and it? it's over. Yeah. Rewinding back to Philadelphia and just 24 hours after that awful hand injury that ended Carl's hopes of fighting for the first time this year, we were all left a bit stunned and we didn't quite know what to do. Did we fly home? Did we try and make the most of our time? And we thought, let's do the latter. So myself and the production guys headed up to Deer Lake, the training camp that Muhammad Ali famously built in the early 1970s to prepare him for the second phase of his career. It's somewhere I've dreamed of going. It was renovated about two years ago to the tune of a million pounds, brought back to close to 
its original state. Now, I met up with David Krause, who's the Borough Council President of Deer Lake now, and as a young boy, he used to ride up the hill from the town and watch Muhammad Ali train as part of the public. I just can't think of anything better. He was also witness to one of the most famous boxing moves of all time, the rope-a-dope that Muhammad Ali famously beat George Foreman with in Kinshasa Zaire in 1974. Let's hear the story about how it all happened. We didn't know it was a rope-a-dope, but I remember them playing with the ropes, size of the ring, looseness of the rope, yeah, so, he could, so that yeah. he could lean and get back. You know, all of that stuff was negotiated before these fights of what they would agree to. And uh, I remember the reporter saying, so you, at the age of what, knew about the rope-a-dope before it was even a the, thing, known yeah. the rope-a-dope? I yeah. said, yeah, we didn't know it was called that, but <laughs> I, after this all happened, yeah. it's like, that's what they were doing up there. They were playing with the ropes, making it so that he could lean back, because he was so fast, he could lean back and, and get away from these, these punches, tire the guy out, you know? Because he was, he was tough to the body, but obviously with, with the heavy-handedness of George Foreman, he needed to make sure that he could ride those shots upstairs, and, and that's what he mm -hmm. did. And it was mm -hmm. it was what was the eighth mm -hmm. round in Zaire, yeah. where he landed yeah. that flurry yeah. of punches. Yeah. Having not done very much, he knew much, he was tired. Yeah. he knew he knew this moment he'd go after him. You're tired now. I'm I'm rested because mm. you've missed most of those fights. Amazing you know? finish. And he would he would time that out for maybe one or two rounds. If you watch a lot of his fights. He did that a lot, you know, in his fights. You'd see him covering up and saying, come on, come on, you know, and uh, tire someone out. And he, he would know by the sting of the punch, but he's, now he's starting to get tired. So round 11 and Martin Murray, we knew it was going to be a good one. We didn't quite know how good. It became a massive hit with our fans this episode. So Martin, thanks for your time. He has, as you know, had a checkered past outside of the ring. He's done a number of stretches in prison, including on foreign soil. How long are you doing, Cyprus? Oh, got lucky. I think got six week, yeah. but it, it was like proper jail. Like it was yeah. something you'd see off a film. So like there was twelve, twelve, six bunk beds, twelve in a cell. Does time go differently as well when you're in there? Six yeah, weeks no, feel like longer than six weeks. No, but you know what? I don't want to obviously glorify you, but you was literally let out in the morning. You sunbathed all day, and you just got locked up at night. You'd come in for a roll call at dinner. And then let back out, and then roll call for tea, and then you was in. Then so he was out. His son just playing football. Did they give not, you sun cream? Not, not no, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> not glorifying it, but it was. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was bad, and and what I put my mum through. Do you know what I mean? My mum nearly had a nervous breakdown, so I put my mum through a lot of. My mum and dad through a lot of crap over years. Like, how often could you ring home? Um, what was it? No, we never, we didn't want a phone, we couldn't phone on. So, what, I guess that must have been the very first time you found out you were going inside. You must, that must have been quite a scary thought, especially... Well, I was on the run, so my mate got nicked before me, and I was just out off my head, um, like, seriously off my head, I didn't know where I was, and uh, I'd come back and the, the, the room had been raided, and they'd been nicked, so I was just on my own, and I, I ended up on the run for a few days. And then I phoned my mum then, like, because I knew I had myself in. There was talk of me going to Egypt, because you can get the boat over to Egypt and flying back from Egypt. But I'd... I'd when I'd got a little moped, which I snapped, fell off and snapped my collarbone in while I was on the run as well, by the way, so <laughs> I had a bad time. <laughs> but then I'd, I didn't know where to put the moped, and I needed the moped to get me scooter, and I just didn't... It was, everything was a blur. I was only there four or five days. It was only there for a week and like it, it all just escalated like that. 
<laughs> but it was at a time where I was just I was just young. I was daft. I was stupid. I look back now, and I mean, I've never been I've never been a nasty person, but I was I was just stupid. Do you know what I mean? But got to the stage where, like, for some unknown reason, like me growing up as a um, as a kid, not young, but like when I got into like me, you know, when I started going out being stupid, I was convinced I was going to be dead before thirty. I was just convinced, you know, because the what I was doing, the 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 life I was leading, I, I thought there's no way I could keep going like this. So I was kind of like, I was just wrecking myself. Do you know what I mean? Just like because I I was just convinced in my head that that's what was going to happen. And finally, if you haven't seen it, I'll leave you with this surprise from Carl and the team. It was my birthday a few Thursdays ago in September. We joined Nigel Travis uh, up at the Mossside Fire Station Boxing Club. And during my final piece to camera, they interrupted me with this. Nigel Travis, an absolute pleasure. We will be back, as always, in... Oh! Happy birthday, son! No! Happy birthday to Happy birthday, dear Chris. Happy birthday to, to you. you. We mom. couldn't like them in a fire station. Oh, exactly. Well, you, it's the one place you could like them is probably in a fire station. Genuinely, I will put it out. I'm a fire. The fire is the devil. Yeah. Um, it's it's really nice that you've done something so lovely for me on the show. I'm just going to let our audience listen to the voice note you left me uh, about my birthday. So obviously that was lovely. This is what. So, so Carl, Carl, obviously, the, the nice guy on screen, this is what he left me uh, a couple of days ago when I said, oh, it's my birthday on Thursday. Say, don't be out that shape. Birthdays aren't fucking days off. I train on my birthdays. I train on my kids' birthdays. I fucking train on my wife's birthday. So, Chris, you can go and fuck yourself. <laughs> It's not. It's really nice. I always think when you find friendship in unusual places. Uh, well, what a trip down memory lane. It's just made me realise what an amazing year it's been. It has flown by and we couldn't have done it without our partners of 32 Reds. Thank you to them. Thank you to Joe, of course, for providing us the platform to do this amazing show. Thank you to Carl and good luck to him in Vegas in a couple of weeks' time. Um, and, of course, thank you to you guys because without you, we don't have a show. You are our audience. The way you've interacted, the way you've retweeted the shows, commented on YouTube, everything you have done to contribute to this has made it what it is. This is the end of season one of TKO, but we will be back soon for season two. I'm very, very pleased to say. Um, and all that leads me to do is thank all of our guests the ones that didn't make the cut, you've made just as valuable a contribution to this show as the ones that did. But thank you to everybody involved. From all of us here, myself, Carl, the whole team at Joe, 32 Red and our guests, we will see you for season two. Take care and thanks so much for watching. You've been watching TKO on Joe, together with 32 Red.